So Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought that he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that the Jewish people were anticipating. We're going to pause it there. There's a, a delightful little twist to the story in the next half dozen verses, but I'll encourage you to read those at home. We're going to pick it up at verse 20, ooh, 18, 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and didn't find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He'd been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, Oh, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to increase and spread. This is God's word. Thanks, Peter. We have had a busy morning doing surveys, catching up with people, sending off kids. Uh, so it is a big morning. I've uh, had, we had a big night out yesterday. Uh, if anybody was there at Inca and Angus's wedding, you'd realise it was such a beautiful wedding yesterday afternoon. 
Um, just really beautiful to see two people who love Jesus, have a real uh, desire to honour God through marriage, uh, getting married. And it was amazing to have that rejoicing time of um, celebrating with them their marriage. Unfortunately for me, it went on into the night, so I rocked up here this morning, probably feeling like many of you, going, gee, I hope this is an interesting sermon, or I'm going to fall asleep. So I'm not sure what that means as the preacher, but um, I'm hoping that God speaks to us today through this, uh, and my sermon on Acts doesn't turn into a wedding talk from yesterday, but I'm sure it's going to be great. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you through stories like this. We get to learn so much about you and we learn so much about ourselves as well. So Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us. We thank you for, um, for making yourself here present with us. And we just pray that you'd open our hearts to help us to understand what it means to worship you, to praise you and live a life that honours you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that kind of satire humour. You know the humour that's kind of like you read it and you go, is this serious or is this having a joke? And then you realise they're just having a go at me but actually they're hitting something close to home that do I want to hear or not hear? Uh, there was something on a Christian website written just recently um, about a Presbyterian church in America who decided to you know, save money like we always should. So they put in sensor lights in their church. And then the headline read, as they uh, after one Sunday, the most motion-activated lights turn off during Presbyterian worship service. <laughs> See, it appears that during the service, when they were hoping to have the lights on, there was so little action from the pastor or the people that there was no motion at all. So every, the lights turned off during the service. And I like... I think the Presbyterian Church in Australia is, we've got a couple of things going against us. One thing, we're Australians, pretty chilled, we're laid back, we don't like getting too excited about anything in particular, particularly showing it expressively. Um, and the other thing, we're Presbyterians, so we just don't do it, even if we wanted to. Um, often is the case. But what does it mean to be a worshipper? What does it mean to express our praise, a life that honours Jesus? I need to start using the word um, magnify Jesus because often when we use worship and praise we often think of just the music bit but what does it mean to magnify Jesus which is more an all-of-life thing what does it mean to see him as Lord so it raises a couple of questions why should we even put anybody up as our Lord as our King somebody we should magnify in our lives why not just magnify ourselves why, why do we have to magnify anybody at all then the second question why should we magnify jesus him particularly see we've been on this journey through acts and we've been seeing uh, different things about jesus how jesus has been at work but here we get to a passage and we're going to dip into chapter 11 just before the passage we had read to us as well and seeing how jesus is at work how he is still lord and king but he's threatened by uh, another king, King Herod, who thinks he's Lord. King and Lord are similar words, but they're both fighting for the throne. They're fighting to be worshipped. They're fighting for you to magnify them. Now, this is a story a long time ago, but it has lots of implication for today. So it's good for us to dip into how two kings, two kings face off at each other. In one corner... We see the Lord Jesus or King Jesus. Now, some would say this is 10 years after his death and resurrection ascension. Some would say he's past his prime because he's no longer there. He's already died once. Uh, what's he got to offer? 
10 years down the track. Is he still Lord? What's he going to do? But if you've got your Bible open, oh no, we're going to see that in just a little bit. The thing with Lord Jesus is that he's got a reputation. See, when Jesus came, he claimed an enormous claim that he was God, in fact, the Son of God, that he was divine. But then he went around doing things, performing miracles, helping uh, people in need, and he went around helping them, but, but people rejected his kingship, his claim to the throne, his, king, his claim to divinity, so they had him killed. You might know that on the cross, the sign above him was because he was king of the Jews, was the claim. We don't want him to be our king, so they killed him. But then three days later, on the, on the third day, on the Sunday morning, he rose again from the grave. So he wasn't dead. Well, he was dead, but he came alive. He showed himself to people. He ate and drank with people. He truly was alive and showed himself to many people. You go, oh, no, if he can defeat death, he truly is God. He truly is, can back up all the claims that he had made. But then he ascended to heaven. He says, look, I'm going to send you guys on mission. All authority has been given to me. I'm going to be with you guys, proclaim this good news, this good message about me as Lord, but I'm going to go back uh, to be with the Father in heaven. So he ascended to heaven uh, and we don't see him uh, in person then. But it raised a couple of questions. If he's gone, how can he still be king? And if he's gone, how do we know that he's still king? Uh, if he's, how do we see him at work? And why should he be still magnified by people 10 years later in this story or even 2,000 years later for us today? Why should we still magnify him? He's in one corner. King Herod's in the other corner. Herod might be a familiar name if you know a lot of the uh, stories, particularly in the New Testament. It was this King Herod's grandfather who had Jesus on trial. Okay, so there's a few generations of Herods who were on the throne. And they'd had a bit to do with Jesus and his followers as well. But he'd been given the throne. It's the Roman Empire, so the Romans installed him. He's our king. And with the Roman kings, there's often, if you prove yourself to be a good king and a powerful king, it often uh, puts you up to a status of divinity. They treat you like a god and they start worshipping you. They build temples to you, uh, hoping that you would still provide their needs for all of eternity. Now this king says, well, I've got the crown, I've got the throne, I've got the nice robe. I'm the rightful king. The Romans have installed me there. They've put me there. I deserve to be magnified by my people. I deserve to be praised and worshipped is what his attitude is. And he says, I'm going to defend my position to any threat dead or alive, being Jesus or his people. It's almost like we're in the front row of this fight. Jesus in one corner, Lord Jesus, King Herod in the other corner, fighting for the throne, but more than that, fighting to be magnified by you, fighting to be worshipped by their people. And we pick this up to see how it's going to unfold. We see how the Lord Jesus is at work in chapter 11. If you've got your Bible open there, you might just skim up a few verses with me. Uh, we can see Jesus is still at work through his believers. So if you look up chapter 11 from verse 19, where it says what Jesus is doing, uh, it fills out the story. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen and travelled as far as Phoenicia, I knew I'd get that wrong, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews, telling good news about Jesus to the Jewish people. But some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, 
telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. That good news uh, can also be understood as the gospel. It's the same word. They're telling them the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And then we see in verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So we need to understand, a lot of, lot of times Luke gives us, Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, gives us um, short summaries of what the gospel is or this good news about Jesus is, about how what well, we talked about, Jesus died for, for the sins of the people, but he died the death so we could have life. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he shows that he's truly Lord, he truly has authority to do what he said he did, and that we too, if we believe in him and trust in him, not through anything that we've done, not through anything that we deserve, but through grace that he gives us new life through his death and resurrection, that we would be raised with him, have life eternal with him in heaven. Good news about grace poured out on anyone who believes. But then we see who's doing this work. Is it this group of people who think it's good that we go around preaching and we'll plant all these churches? This is our goal. That's no, Jesus Luke wants to make sure it's clear we understand that. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. It's like God is active. Jesus is building his church through individuals. He's changing people's lives. It's about people coming to faith in him, seeing him as Lord and Saviour. So Jesus is at work. This, this very um, active thing of using his hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to God. So we need to appreciate what's going on here, not just they're believing the story. You know, we could read the Bible or read any historian and say, well, Jesus, uh, from a historical point of view, really was a man. There's enough historical evidence. He did really live. Uh, he did really um, do miracles, the evidence that is there. There's something amazing about him, and he did really die. And even if he said he did rise again, it's historical. Let's go, yeah, well, I can believe that. I can believe Captain Cook discovered Australia. I can believe lots of things that go, well... That's nice to believe it, but it doesn't really change my life. But it says these people turned. It caused them to turn around their life. They changed direction. So they're actually not just believing Jesus was somebody who came and lived and died, rose again. But because of that, he's truly Lord. And because he's Lord, he deserves to be magnified in our lives, deserves to be worshipped and praised. So we need to turn our lives around from going the direction we're going, whether we're worshipping and praising the, the other gods in their culture of the day or worshipping and praising ourselves, but we're going to turn and start worshipping Jesus because he's the Lord, he's the King, and he's the one I'm going to follow. So it's actually more than just a head thing. It actually changes their lives. And this is so, you know, the Jews in, uh, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are always a bit sceptical when the Gentiles and Greeks return, uh, turn to God. So they send Barnabas to go and check this out. Is this really true? Is there real evidence that these people really do treat Jesus as Lord? And that's where we pick it up in verse 23. Uh, Barnabas, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them, or encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. See, I'm not sure what they're expecting him to find Barnabas, when you go to this town and find these people, we want to see a church building built. We want to see people rocking up on Sundays. We want to see them reciting creeds and doing all this kind of religious stuff. How do you define if people are true worshippers of God, of Jesus? Jesus is Lord and King. But he summarises it here. He's convinced. He says, I see evidence of the grace of God at work in their lives. 
doesn't give us a whole lot of detail what that actually looks like, but he will tell us a bit later. But he says there's grace at work. And grace can only be at work through our conversations, through our actions, through our love and acceptance of other people. If God's so gracious that he accepted me, I can live out grace by accepting other people, forgiving other people, welcoming them into the family. There's this evidence of the grace of God at work in their lives. They've really turned. And he says, encourage them to remain true to the Lord. That's like Jesus is king now. Jesus is Lord. Magnify him. Stay true to that. Don't forget he's Lord. And don't forget to continue to magnify him. Now there's a saying that goes around when people uh, become Christians or maybe a lot of different faiths. uh, That there's a process of transformation that it's kind of head, heart and wallet. That with our head, we might believe something with our heart. We actually are emotionally connected to it. Yeah, I'm going to live with all my life for this. But it's often our wallet from top down is the last one to be converted. So you kind of go, well, how does our money... It was interesting doing that survey, one of the questions, if you got that far, about, uh, about giving. So they associate being a Christian, worshipping Jesus. There's a giving aspect is a part of our worship. But what does it mean for these guys? It says they're full of grace. How does grace impact what they do with their money, the last thing that's to be converted? If you go down to verse 27, we get this bit of a story about what's been told to them is going to happen. From verse 27, he says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, their town. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, so now the disciples being all the believers there, each according to his ability decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders via Barnabas and Saul. These guys have had such a turnaround. The grace has had such impact on their lives that they're living out grace even with their wallets. It says, each according to his ability. It's not like, you know, they, they passed around the hat in any spare change they had. But no, they saw the need and each to his own abilities, like as much as we can afford, we're going to chip in and help our brothers in another area because they're going to face some hard times in the famine. They're very generous with their money, it would seem. Not sure how much, but as much as they could afford, they decided to provide help, even with their money is a part of worshipping God and how we live out the grace of God. And the other surprising thing is too, it's not just their friends down the road, it's their brothers living in Judea. Remember I just kind of alluded to those guys living in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, uh, those Jewish Christians are all over Judea. These guys are in Antioch. It's different. It's, uh, the outsiders, they're Gentiles. Jews are always sceptical of Gentiles, but now it's the Gentiles saying our Jewish brothers the ones that don't cut us any slack, the ones that come and visit us to make sure we're doing the right thing, they're in trouble or they're going to be in trouble, but we're going to help them out anyway. We're going to be generous to them financially and help them out. So here we see a picture of not just who they're magnifying, but how they're magnifying in all their life. That to worship Jesus as Lord is not just the Sunday mornings, but it's all of life of what they're doing they pour out grace upon others it's active it's alive it's evidence even with their giving their money that the hand of the lord is at work jesus is at work in these people and things are happening because he's lord and king that's jesus at work in his corner what about herod the king because he wants to defend his right to be king 
his hand is also at work. He's active, pursuing his right to the throne. And he's trying to take out his enemies. This is where we hit chapter 12. And there's a couple of things, interesting things going here that kind of get missed when uh, we translate it from the original Greek into our English language. But let me, let me point a couple of things out to you. So from chapter 12, verse 1, it was about this time King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. This word arrested literally means he laid hands on. To arrest somebody, it's rightly translated arrested, but literally means he laid hands on them. His hands at work as well, laying hands on the Christians, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that uh, this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. That word seize is to get hold of. So another hand action, he's holding, he's grabbing them, he's capturing them, he's seizing Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened uh, unleavened Bread. And after arresting him, again, after laying hands on him, he put him in prison, handing him over to, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each with Herod intending to bring him out for public trial after the, pers- after the Passover. So there we pick up the picture. Herod's hands at work. He's actively trying to get rid of his opposition to the throne, which is Jesus and his followers. But here we pick up the story where uh, Peter is chained up in jail. So he's got a soldier each side with a chain going from him to the soldier, one each side. Peter's had a reputation of breaking out of jails before through earthquakes and different other things. Herod didn't want to see that happen again. So he's got lots of soldiers, one on each side with chains. There's at least two guards at the door. There's at least two guards at the front door of the jail. And then there's usually in those sort of jails another big fence with a big iron gate. So if you somehow to get past all the guards, you're still not going to get over the fence or through the gate. But here we see Jesus, Jesus who was dead and buried and ascended 10 years ago, he's still at work even now. We see it in verse 7. We say Jesus, we're told that Jesus sent an angel of the Lord, not just any angel, it was an angel sent by Jesus. And only one angel. How many soldiers were there? Lots. One angel Jesus sends and he rescues Peter. The chains fall off the two soldiers from beside him. And they don't seem to notice whether they're asleep or something. I don't know. They don't usually fall asleep. There's at least two guards at the cell door. He walks past them. There's at least two guards at the door of the front door of the jail. But then he's got the wall. He's got the gate. But then the gate just flies open. And he's able to walk out. One angel from the Lord. Jesus sweeps his hand again. And Peter just walks out as a free man. But then we see the fallout from this. Peter walks free. Something's got to happen because Herod is not happy. He's been embarrassed. He's promised the Jews we're going to wipe out these Christians, had Peter arrested. But now somebody's got to take the fall for this. And who takes the fall when the king's not happy? It's the guys who mucked up. Their job was on the line. Their job was to look after this guy, to keep him chained up. And they're failed because he's gone. So what happened to them? They get killed. He puts them to the sword. The jailers failed. They die because they've dishonoured Herod ultimately. So that's part of that story. But then we move on to what Herod's really going to do to really affirm that he is truly king. Uh, He goes to Caesarea. Caesarea is an interesting place. 
uh, in the Roman Empire, this is where the Caesars rule. The Caesars, you think Roman Empire, they're the top dogs. This is their hometown. They have the big amphitheatre, they have the big temples. It's a full place of worship, particular emperor worship. They think they, they, they worship them as divine. But here we have uh, Herod turning up. And he's been treated with such great honour and glory. He's, he's in the amphitheatre. He's their guest speaker for this morning. And the people love him and they're just lapping him up. That he's so good. Uh, with the famine eluding, people are looking, him, looking to him for food. And they're looking, they're looking to Herod to be their saviour in a sense. If we appeal to him, he can help us out. Remember, this is Caesar, the great Caesar, looking to Herod to help him out. If you were Herod, that would puff you up full of a bit of pride, wouldn't it? You're the guest speaker at some packed amphitheatre at the main gig and everybody's uh, just hanging off every word. And it looks like he's going to come through, to, come through for them. There's another guy uh, around in this time that writes about these sort of events who's not a Christian. So we can read Luke's account of what, what happened. Uh, but it's also interesting to see a historian's account. This guy called Josephus was a Jew, worked very closely with the Romans. The Romans employed him, say, look, we want a record of all the things that are happening in the empire. And he records this event uh, with Herod going to speak at this event. And this is what he writes. Herod entered the amphitheatre at daybreak. He was dressed in a robe made completely of silver and with wonderful weaving. The king's flatterers, I assume that means his groupies, were amazed at the radiance of the silver robe when the rays of sun touched it. They addressed him as God, saying, Be gracious to us. Before we revered you as a human being, but from this time on we confess you to be more than a man. And you can see this, this amazing silver robe that he's got. He's sitting on his throne just delivered this amazing speech. And everybody goes, you're, the, you're more than a man. You're like God. We can see it. We can hear it. It looks great. But we know there can only be one Lord. Everybody's chanting Herod's name in this circle. But there can only be one Lord. And they look to Herod for food. Where again, Jesus, with the hand of his work, Jesus sends an angel from the Lord. And instead of Herod supplying food, Herod becomes food, in a sense. They mock him. Jesus, I think God has a sense of humour. He turns into worm food. The angel of the Lord strikes him down with worms. Even Josephus records how Herod soaked up the adoration for the crowd from himself. He didn't deny that he was God. He lapped it up. And then he was seized with internal pains, carried home. He couldn't even walk home. He's carried home and five days later died. That's his historical fact. Luke doesn't say it happened straight away. Five days, that's okay. But we see immediately with him contesting the throne as king and lord, Jesus just striking him down. And just as the worm increased and spread, we see in verse 24, the word of God continued to increase and spread. There's a whole bunch of dad jokes in this. I'm saving you from all those. But there's a number of things that are just like, what? it's too obvious. Luke's got a sense of humour. The word of God continues to spread. Jesus is still working his work, doing his thing, reigning as king and lord. But there's a few things going on here that we can see, what does it mean to be king and lord? And why should we 
follow Jesus and put Jesus up as King and Lord compared to someone like Herod. Because if we put something up as King and Lord of our, over our lives, if we say we're going to magnify this particular thing, like Herod put himself up as King, and when people failed him, what happened? They got killed. You fail me, you embarrass me, you die. But for Jesus, when you fail this king, he says, I won't let you fall. I will take your death. I will die. It's a big difference, isn't there? How this plays out for a lot of different things. Whatever you make as king and lord of your life, and it might not be a person, it could be just the fact of being religious. Being religious must please God. If I be religious, hold that as number one. If I magnify that as my life, surely I'll be right. But what it means is you must be good enough. You must be religious enough. If you're not good enough, you're going to fall. You're going to fail. And being religious enough is not going to be good enough to get you into heaven. That's what works out. What about relationships? Whether it's desiring that boyfriend or girlfriend or a marriage partner, a spouse, going, all we want to do is I love them so much to honour them as my number one. I'm going to magnify them. I'm going to worship them in my life and put them up. But what happens if you fail? What happens if you're not good enough? What happens when it breaks down because you're not good enough? You basically lose everything. You've given up everything because you put your hope in someone who wasn't worthy. Or even your job or who you are as your identity with the promotion, the income, how that makes you who you are. If I work hard at that, that's going to give me everything I need. So I'm going to work, I'm going to magnify who I am through that job. But what happens if you fail there? What happens if you're good enough? Even if it's not getting the promotion or the income that you want. Your identity's gone because you've put all your eggs into that, but it hasn't come through for you. And you've failed again, giving up your identity. (coughs) Jesus says, when you fall, when you fail, I will never let you lose everything. Why? Because I gave up everything so you can have life, true life. I was the one who was worthy on the throne, worthy on what religion is meant to point to. But I gave that up so you can have true life. What about relationships? I lost the most greatest relationship we ever know between the father and the son when Jesus went to the cross. The father was separated from him. He gave up the the greatest relationship so we can have a true relationship with him. He gave up his identity when he, the king of the universe, went to the cross to be mocked and killed by people who rejected him. He gave up his identity. He took the blows so we could have his identity and made children of God. That's an amazing king, isn't it? That's an amazing lord who we need to follow, who we need to honour and magnify. No one that's going to rule over us with a heavy hand. One's going to welcome us to die for us and to give us life. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm not going to magnify anything in my life because I, don't, I think I'm just better than that. So I'm going to magnify myself. I think I'm more worthy to sit on the throne. And we see how that worked out for Herod. Herod didn't want to give up the throne. But it doesn't work. As Herod died, and that was the end of him, written up in history, so will we. Where Jesus says, I'm going to give up my throne so you can have life. I'm going to give up my throne so you can sit with me in heaven. And the New Testament talks a lot about as we die with him, we reign with him. We will have great honour with him. See, if Jesus is real, 
you know, he's historically accurate. You know, it might be a good belief to go, oh yeah, I believe Jesus was around. But if you see that he proved that he really was the son of God and he really can restore you to being God's children, being with him for all eternity, and that he's still at work when he walked the earth 10 years later and even around today he's working in our lives. He deserves our praise. He deserves our magnification. He deserves to be honoured. How does that work out for us today? Me, being an Aussie, born and bred Presbyterian, how does that look for me to say, I'm going to magnify Jesus in all I do, in all my life? Now we see uh, we've got a good taste of it, that we, that we actually live out a life of grace, that we point people to Jesus through our conversations, through our actions, through our generosity, even with our wallets. We go, God's given us everything, why would we hold back? So we pour out with our money, we're generous with our money to, to worship and praise him. We, make, we don't make a big deal about money in this church. In fact, if you miss it, uh, the collection bags are gone before you know it. But, but think about how do you worship God with your money? You don't have to use collection bags, by the way. Electronic banking uh, works good for us. But it's those sort of things. Slip in that plug there. But it's those sort of things that go, Jesus is really at work in my heart. I'm going to magnify him in all of life. What does that look like in here? Now, I'd love we're thinking through ways, particularly in New Auditorium, to be to be show that we're more active in our faith. I don't mean a dance floor or anything like that. But things like how we do Lord's Supper is one of the things I've been thinking through for a long time. That uh, yes, we want to participate at the table of the Lord Jesus with our bread and our juice, but we just sit here and it gets served to us. You know, the most effort we do is eat and drink and kind of like. Is that active participation? What about coming up? And we'll have more room in the new building to do that. To actually say, yeah, I want to participate at Jesus' table. I'm going to actively do it. What about in the way we sing? I mean, we just have this, it's more just traditional conservative thing that we, we just like having our hands to the side. It's very biblical to put our hands in the air and say, it's almost like a sign of surrender. You are king, so I'm happy to worship you and praise you. It's not if we have a policy that we don't do that. I encourage you, at least give it a go to just say, hey, I'll worship you and praise you. And, and anybody can do whatever they want in that singing. But it's closing your eyes, meditating on the words, just reflecting, uh, singing the words, and just reflect on them, sing it as a prayer. Even put your hands up to say, Lord, we honour you as our King and our Lord and Saviour. But it's saying, you are truly the one we want to magnify in our lives here on Sundays but every day at home, at work and everywhere. I want to pray that we be a people known for living out grace in Jesus and known for worshipping him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for that great reminder of why we should honour you. And Lord, as we reflect on that, we often uh, we realise how often we're just lazy in honouring you with our lives. We like to get on with our, our own busyness, seek our own glory and not hand it to you like Herod. Or we pursue other things to glorify in our lives. We're excited about work, we're excited about sport, excited about our stuff or our families. We're so excited about other things, but we never talk about you. So thank you for God that you don't wipe us away when we fail, but you accept us through your grace, that you forgive us and welcome us as your children. Lord, help us to live out a life of magnification for you. That our lives are like this magnifying glass that point to you so people can understand just how big you are. That whether it's in church here, whether it's at work and our conversations at home, Lord, 
that we truly live a life of grace and that we honour you in all we do. We pray for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.